Instagram, I guess, is many, known to many of us, it's a bit of a social media giant, isn't it, at the moment? In its nine years of existence, over 40 billion photos have been shared. There are 4.2 billion likes on Instagram every day. Fun fact, the top person who has followed more than anyone else in the whole world is Cristiano Ronaldo with 152 million followers. It's just a, just a few more than uh, the church account. Um, Instagram, <laughs> Instagram though, uh, you know, and other social media can be a lot of fun and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not going to be a prude here or a downer, but at the same time, I, I'm sure none of us are naive to the kind of that malevolent side to social digital platforms. Instagram, though, what does it do? It promotes the kind of picture-perfect life. It hides, doesn't it, the grim and gritty reality of everyday existence. You don't often see on Instagram, do you, a mum taking a selfie of herself with child vomit all around her as she's clearing that up or doing the fourth load of washing that day. That doesn't appear much on Instagram, does it? Or, you know, you, you don't see people taking, like you guys, you know, at work at 10 o'clock at night, you know, with your eyes drawn all pasty white, you know, coffee cups strewn over your desks and, you know, just feeling drained from the pressures of work. You don't see that on Instagram much, do you? Oh, we all know this. I'm not going to try and dig it. Social media just doesn't portray reality, does it? Wonderfully, though, but there's been a bit of a trend recently. People have begun to make a, a kind of a bit of a joke of this. A number of parody Instagram accounts have popped up and gained a good following recently. So, for example, I've kind of put up this is your typical Instagram Im- image. If we just go forward a few, uh, next one, and leave it there. That's your typical Instagram image, isn't it? You know, there's a lady, you know, everything's posed really well, huge burger, glass of wine. Uh, that's image seems so perfect the lighting's perfect she's so manicured Uh, and people have started to make fun of these kind of images this lady for example this next one she posts uh, kind of images of herself doing the similar things uh, kind of just mocking the instagram picture she's parodying instagram imitating it and exaggerating it for comic effect that's what a parody is. Now, we can move on one, I think, probably just get that lady off. That's perfect. <laughs> it's really interesting. What you've just heard in 2 Corinthians 11, many scholars would argue that that is exactly what Paul is doing to the leaders in the church in Corinth. He is parodying them. He's kind of like, for comic effect, kind of exaggerating what they're saying and making a joke of it in many ways. Sarcasm, irony is kind of, kind of eking through this passage. Now, we've been away from this letter for a few weeks. Uh, so let me just sketch a little, if we can, a rough picture of where we are at, uh, both in terms of Corinth as a place, but also the church in Corinth. Now, if Instagram did exist in the first century... You can imagine that the place of Corinth would have just so many users. Corinth was a boom town, right at the south of, um, of Greece as we know it. It exploded in growth as a kind of its place of commerce. It was the place to be, the place to make huge amounts of money and the place to enjoy yourself. The place itself, the city was really impressive. The people were impressive people. 
And the culture of the time certainly didn't say, oh, keep that quiet. No, it was very much that kind of Instagram selfie kind of culture. They were encouraged to show off as much as possible. It's interesting, actually, writing of the time shows us, actually, that humility, that, what we understand to be of humility, was actually understood as something that was wrong. It was considered a vice. Uh, one scholar wrote, humility and servility were indistinguishable in the language of the time. There were synonyms in that way. Well, that was Corinth as kind of a place. What about the church, though, in Corinth? What we do know about the church in Corinth is it was very young. It's only uh, probably five or so years old at this point. Uh, It it was quite fragile. Paul had established uh, the church there on his first visit. But what was clear from his numbers of letters that he'd written and the people that he'd sent as well was that the church was really struggling. And it was struggling to distinguish itself from the city. The church at times seemed more Corinthian than Christian. Now Paul ends what is now probably, this is actually, I know it says two Corinthians, it's probably four Corinthians, but we don't have the other two letters. Uh, He ends this, the last section of his writing, if you like, to this young fragile church. And most would argue that this is probably his most heartfelt of all of his writings. Some teachers had come into the church. We've been looking at those the last few weeks. If you look back to chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see there he mockingly, again, sarcasms here throughout, mockingly he calls them the super apostles. And they come into the church and they were beginning to undermine Paul. They, like the church, the city in Corinth, were very impressive. Healthy men, strong men, handsome men, eloquent speakers. They were questioning Paul. And they were questioning him as an apostle of God. These uh, teachers had these letters of recommendation. They talked about them. Uh, They would come and say, look who recommends me. Aren't I so good? They looked and sounded so impressive. And it seems that they were suggesting that Paul, because of his outward appearance and other things, uh, he wasn't quite as spiritual as they were. I remember going to an event uh, just uh, last summer when it was pretty hot. And uh, it was with a bunch of church leaders. And I, uh, I was asked to wear, it said on the invitation, the email, clerical attire. Now, none of you get emails like this, but I did. And um, I had to wear clerical. So I turned up on my motorbike, because it was really hot, wearing jeans, and a clerical shirt. You know, one of those ones with a kind of like dog colour and all that kind of stuff? Now, it was this really hot day, and I walked in to this uh, room. I I found some old gentlemen, which I knew, and uh, they were there, clerical shirts. They'd read their email just like me, Clerical shirts, but they had like Bermuda shorts and flip-flops on. And they were, they were really kind of down. They were just loving it. And they, that was one side of the room. And the other side of the room, well, there was a bunch of church ministers there. And they would wear their clerical shirts. And they had robes on and these things around their necks. And uh, they were absolutely sweating buckets. I had, a chat, I had to chat some of these guys and uh, ladies and... Uh, for part of the afternoon, and you'd be amazed. Oh, the language was subtle, 
But they had comments like this. Did you not understand the email from the bishop? Did you, uh, do you not own the right attire? Their message was simple. Apparently in their eyes, I and others like me, we didn't look the part. Some even doubted my intelligence to read and understand a simple email from a bishop. Some more subtly with patronising tones suggested, can you actually afford the robes that we wear? They looked down their noses at me and some of my friends, and they clearly felt superior, spiritually superior, and they spoke as such. The same is happening here in Corinth. These leaders in the church have the wrong idea of what authentic leadership and authentic Christian living look like. And Paul must have written these chapters with a very, very heavy heart, but he needs the church to begin to listen to him again. He must stop these gullible people within, the young people within the church who, who he loves so much. He must stop them being led away from the authentic message of the gospel that these leaders were undermining. And Paul has already warned in this chapter that these teachers, they're not just getting a few kind of minor details wrong. Look back to, look back to verse 13 of the chapter. It's probably Paul's strongest sentence in all of his writings. He says there they are false apostles. Oh, they may masquerade as, they look so impressive, but they don't fool Paul and we must not be naive. We must be alert because there are so many out there. These teachers boasted, they loved themselves, they, they posted you know, selfies of themselves on Instagram all the time. They had numerous gullible followers. And this was their kind of modus operandi. This is the way of doing things for them in that culture. And Paul is so worried. He's concerned that he's losing the church to, to these servants of Satan, literally, says in verse 14, who are over-promising blessings that are promised for heaven. And they're saying, oh, you can have all of that now. And so what does Paul do? Well, he sees what the church will listen to and he adopts, interestingly, the same methods to reach out to them. That is, as we saw last time in, in verse 1 of this chapter, he begins to boast like the false teachers, like the super apostles. Look at verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. See, Paul hates where he's going to have to go here. He's saying, really sorry, guys, but you're going to have to put up with me in this. This is foolish. But this is all the, the only way that you'll listen. And so again, in verse 16, at the beginning of our passage, look what he says here. He says, uh, this shows you exactly what he thinks about boasting. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool. So they might do, so that might do a little boasting. In other words, he's saying, yeah, it seems that to be heard in this young church in Corinth, I'm going to have to show off a little bit like these false teachers. That's our first main point. Paul asked the Corinthians to tolerate him. 
And once again, he's using huge irony to unpick these false teachers. He's saying, you know, I'll play along for a while. I'll blow my trumpet for a bit, shall I? you know, like a fool. I know you'll tolerate that because you do it already. But look at verse 17. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would. Jesus doesn't need to do this, doesn't do this. But as a fool, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. And here is that wonderful spade loads of sarcastic kind of irony. Verse 19. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Now, Paul is willing to be a fool. Well, literally, actually, he will take part in a little insanity. But only because it's the, it's the very thing that they'll, it's the only thing they'll listen to at this stage. Verse 20, in fact, even you put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. And there you get a glimpse, don't you, what these leaders were like in Corinth. They exploit And they take advantage of the church. And the culture encouraged leaders to be like this. They had to be authoritarian, strong. Often that meant abusive. How often we see that, sadly, in the church. People were expected to grovel in front of these leaders in submission to them. These leaders, they they were from a a very privileged, spiritual, kind of elite background. But instead of serving the church, they looked down upon the people and they used them. Now, Paul finishes his opening to his boasting with a statement. And again, it's dripping with sarcasm. Look at verse 21. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. In effect, he's kind of saying, yeah, yeah I, I'm ashamed, but, but we, were t- we were too weak to make a despicable kind of display of overbearing leadership like these false teachers. We, we're just not strong enough for that. Shame on me for not taking advantage of you. That's what kind of he's saying. It's so dripping with sarcasm. We must be really careful that we are not fooled by leaders like this. The tone of their voice and the size of their ministry. Let's not be fooled by those things. There are many bullies out there who lead huge churches. And they may look very impressive. And they may sound so gentle in their tone as they speak. But if you cross them, be warned. Sadly, these Corinthians were being fools. They were were gullible and looking at all the wrong things. And what Paul now does is kind of, he lowers himself and boasts. But in a really carefully constructed way. With lots of little couplets, as you'll see as we go through. But to his shame, in a desperate attempt to get the church to listen, Paul boasts to the Corinthians. This is our second and main point today. Paul boasts to the Corinthians. And look where he begins Boasting in, in a sense, is his identity, who he was as a person, his fleshly identity, or you might say his ancestry. You put it down there on your sheets. Look at verse 21, halfway through. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. And he asks a number of questions. 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Now, Paul there is, is sharing that kind of threefold kind of fleshly identity, his ancestry there. He's the impeccable Israelite, the impeccable Hebrew, the impeccable descendant of Abraham. We could go through and show that throughout of his letters, we see that again and again. Culturally, ethnically, racially, he's right at the top. And it appears that the people in Corinth and Greek culture, more generally, really, really kind of valued someone's kind of ethnic origin. And Paul is showing them here that as a fleshly human being, he was superior to any of these teachers. And in every way. So Paul has begun to get their attention of his readers as he boasts about his ancestry. His, his ethnic and spiritual origins were, were absolutely impeccable. But now Paul continues by asking another question. Look at verse 23. Look at the next question. Are they servants of Christ? Are they servants of Christ? And look how he responds. I am more. But it appears at this stage that Paul has had enough because immediately within that kind of a, the, the brackets there, you see, he, look what he says. I am out of my mind to talk like this. And with that, he makes a very, very deliberate and dramatic shift in his boasting. From boasting in his strengths, he suddenly starts boasting in his weaknesses. And he will not stop. Second point in that, our major point today, Paul boasts to the Corinthians about his weaknesses. The fact that this seems strange and countercultural today may indicate how Corinthian we ourselves have become as a culture and maybe as a church. And it's good to remember that. Where Paul could have gone in verse 23, in chapter 11 and onwards. This is a man who in his armory, he's not coming, suddenly going, oh, I've got nothing else to say. And therefore, I'll just turn to some of my weaknesses and just keep the conversation going. No, Paul had everything at his disposal. He could have boasted about his accomplishments the powers, the miracles, the churches he's planted, the, the journeys he's been on. This man had preached to more people than any of these leaders, all of them put together. He could have boasted for days. And that would have been expected. That was customary for the time. Famously, uh, Augustus Caesar, I think it's going to pop up on the screen here. We've got Augustus Caesar, there he is. You can go and see him in the British Museum, apparently. He wrote, he wrote his own eulogy to be read out at his funeral. What did it do? It listed all of his accomplishments. Humble man, there we go. It was like the longest boasting Instagram post you could possibly imagine. Now, really interestingly, what's going on here? Many people think that Paul's boasting is a very, very careful parody 
of his boasting. Paul lists his weaknesses and he does so structured in the same way but opposite to this because this was the most well known in a sense boasting of the time. Let's look, let's go on so we get rid of him. That's good, we got rid of him. Verse 23, look at it. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk less. I am more. And here we go. I've I've worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. To anyone of this culture, and maybe today, this is like double foolishness. This was considered crazy then, it will be considered crazy now. But Paul is arguing for the authenticity and the superiority of his apostolic service from weakness. And look at verse 23. It starts with kind of general comments, doesn't it? And it shows pretty much Paul hasn't just suffered once or twice. His life was a perpetual torment, never ending suffering. That's the point of verse 23. And then he gets more specific. Look at verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Let's look at one of those more specifically. The 40 lashes minus one. That's a specific punishment that the Jews brought about for the worst of the worst within the synagogue. No more than 40 were allowed under Jewish law, hence why they stopped at 39, just in case they miscounted, because the person doing the beating, if they went over, they would be beaten themselves, likely to death. Let's be clear. One flogging could kill a man. And often people died at sea. Paul was a living monument to his suffering. His back would have been terribly, terribly. You couldn't meet him without seeing him being disfigured. Each time his back would have been broken, uh, the skin would have been broken, and next time it would break more easily. If you want to know how much Paul loves his people, how much he's willing to make Christ known, uh, how much he's willing to suffer in order to make Christ known. Imagine, he walks into a, a city, he's hauled up, he always went to the synagogue first, he's hauled up, he's flogged. He knew that every town that he visited, that was incredibly likely to happen to him. Would you go? Would you go back to the same town where you've been flogged, beaten, stoned? The scar's not quite healed on your back. Would you then walk into that town again? The Corinthian church and these new leaders were questioning his authority and and superiority as an apostle of Christ. And as one scholar, I think, wonderfully put it, he said, his credentials dripped with his blood. He loved these people. He just wanted them to know Christ. 
so countercultural, this, isn't it? And that he, as he lists the, the dangers now of his ministry, that's where it kind of moves on. Uh, you've got to contrast this to the, 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 the kind of the prosperity teaching of today. And those who claim that oh, the only way that they can do their ministry is if they get a £40 million private jet and fly from here to there from their mansions and so on to gullible, vulnerable people around the world. Contrast them. Have them in your mind now. And now consider authentic apostolic ministry of Paul. Listen. Verse 26. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Carefully compiled in these lists of, uh, in couplets, leaving one alone at the end, indicating the biggest danger of all, the false believers. Who are they? They're the false teachers of verse 13 in Corinth. Same word being used. Verse 27, I've laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone, often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. My friends, you can read any book. I love reading history, uh, church history books. And, you know, it's my favourite summer pastime. I read about someone who's just got absolutely brutally, you know, whatever, you know, is preaching the gospel somewhere around the, country, around the world. Within church history, you will not find a man who has suffered more. And if under Christ, Paul isn't your number two Christian all-time hero, then I'd have to challenge his son, is he? No, I'm joking, but you know, he's got to be up there. But what causes the greatest suffering in Paul's ministry? Look at it. Beaten, flogged, going hungry, without sleep. No, look at verse 28. This may shock you. Besides everything else that is preeminent in my suffering, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. And we know from his other letters to Corinth that he wrote with a with a heavy, heavy heart. He loved these people. And his deepest, most painful suffering for him, day by day, hour by hour, night after night, was them. It was the people that he loved. And he could see them and the danger they were in from these false teachers. His heart ached. For the people was his greatest pain and it rips you apart when you see those that you love walking away from God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you see people ignoring Christ's teaching on sex and relationships, following their feelings and the surrounding culture and not having Jesus as Lord. This was Paul's greatest suffering. Verse 29 is... Paul share an example of that from a previous letter. Who is weak? This is from 1 Corinthians. Who is weak and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. He burns inside. Such is his passion for these people. He loves them. And he's raging because of these false teachers who have come in to the church preaching a message that looks so lovely. You can be a victor. 
You can win. Life's great. This triumphal teaching that opposed the gospel. They promise health, wealth and prosperity in this life, focusing on the spectacular to gain attention for themselves. It was a popular teaching then. It's attractive now, very sadly. Look at this Instagram post. It's from a pastor of the largest church in America from last week. I didn't have to look very far. I declare everything that doesn't line up with God's vision for my life is subject to change. Sickness, trouble, lack, mediocrity are not permanent. They're only temporary. I will not be moved by what I see, but what I know. I am a victor and never a victim. And I'll become all God has created me to be. This is my declaration. Now, you can be really kind and say, oh, he's speaking about heaven there. No, he's not. You contrast Joel Osteen to Paul. Apparently this man is a victor. He drives supercars, flies in his own private jet. Apparently to him, sickness isn't a permanent thing. Well, come and speak to me and our family. Mediocrity and lack aren't forever in this life. Go to a council estate. Contrast Joel Osteen to Jesus, to Paul, to any authentic minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is disgusting and it is really dangerous. And so Paul concludes, verse 30, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He boasts in his weakness to authenticate himself as an apostle. Because he was a victim. Not always the victor. He was sick, in trouble. Danger permeated every moment of his life. But in his weakness, that is the place where God's strength will be made known. He wasn't ashamed or embarrassed about his weakness. He even swears with an oath, if you look down to verse 31, to show that he's not lying when boasting in his weakness. And he recalls the weakness that he'd experienced in Damascus at the start of his ministry as an example. It's an extraordinary thing. Verse 32 to close. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a, in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. You can read about this account in Acts. If you remember, Paul first went to Damascus. How? Well, he went firstly to be a persecutor of the Christians. To kill them. And then, of course, he went. And on the way, he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, he went outwardly strong and powerful. And then later, as a preacher of the gospel, he was shamefully lowered in a stinking basket to escape in weakness. It seems that Paul is using, in a sense, his, his life and his, his kind of interaction with Damascus as a little model of his life. He met the risen Christ on the way to Damascus, and that has completely turned his world upside down. He began preaching the cross, which is foolishness, as he says to those who are perishing in 1 Corinthians. 
It seems like weakness, the cross, doesn't it? But his life and his ministry was full of suffering and weakness. And he was unashamedly so. I think as Christians we have to be very careful not to interpret the Christian faith through the lens of culture. Rather we must and we should interpret culture through the gospel. And that will radically change your expectations as it has for Paul. We need to be really, really careful about being Corinthian as individuals and as a church. I know many of you know I serve at some conferences and I sometimes do so quite embarrassingly. When you see their advertising, come to our conference, we have thousands of people, great entertainment, great fireworks. And they say it's a Bible conference, but then they keep everything in the dark so you can't actually read your Bibles. It's Corinthian. First and foremost, if we want to not be Corinthian but more Christian, we must kill our boasting and our pride. You think that'll be different for every single one of us, won't it? What do we boast in? What are we proud about in our conversations? Our successes? Our education? Our holidays? Our relationships? Now, they're all good things. But they give us no ultimate value, do they? And lastly, last, I suppose, application point. As Christians, we can and must acknowledge and embrace our own weakness. Surely we see that here. Because when we begin to acknowledge that we are weak, that we do suffer, that things sometimes are really difficult, when we begin to acknowledge that and embrace that weakness, and give it to Christ, then, and only then, will we begin to be the place where God will display his power and his glory in and through us. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray.